Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host, and I hope that you all are staying sane and healthy. And I um, am going to apologize up front because I have been sick. I have asthma. Obviously, this whole pandemic thing freaks me the hell out. And um, the uh, whole wipes and stuff that you're supposed to use and stuff like that, it um, messes with my um, asthma a lot, as you can tell by my voice and stuff like that. And um, so last week on Thursday, I ended up in the ER. And um, I was supposed to be admitted. And because of this whole pandemic thing, I was not. And um, now I've dealt with my asthma since 87. And uh, I was in seventh grade at that point. And things have come a long way since then, I, I will have to admit. Things have come a long, long, long way since then. And um, being told that, hey, you should be admitted, you should be on oxygen, but we're not going to because you're in more danger of actually being here because you could be exposed to what's going on. So we're just going to send you home is <laughs> a little bit more weird than anything else. So that being said, for all those fellow asthmatics that are out there, be careful with what you're doing. I know people are freaking out and they're cleaning their houses and stuff like that. But for those that have allergies to like dust and exercise induced and sensitives to smell and stuff like that, be careful. Because if you have a severe attack, unless you are super, super, like, I mean, way beyond bad. And like I said, I was supposed to be on oxygen. They're not putting you in the hospital. They're, they're sending you home. Okay. So what should have taken me three days to heal is now going to take me three to four times longer to get better. And it already sucks not being able to breathe, but having to deal with everything else on top of it, it it's hard. So just keep that in mind. And I worked really hard to get up to where I was. Before all of this happened, I actually had a cane and everything. I, ha I had to use a cane because I was so out of breath all the time. And I, I, I worked really hard. And now, now I am, I'm lucky if I can walk up and down my steps without being out of breath or even having a conversation. So taping this podcast might take me a lot longer. So just bear with me. But anyways, 
If this is your first time listening, please remember that this podcast is available on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Facebook, and Spotify. And, and if you enjoy this, please let me know by going in and rating the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And you can go down and, and download the other episodes. This episode is called The Sweetheart Murders. And this is episode 25, believe it or not. But what I want you to do is I want you to imagine for Christmas that, and some of you might have gotten these this past Christmas, because I know a couple Christmases ago, this was like super popular, that you received one of those kits to get your um, DNA done, to see your heritage. You wanted to research your family history. And like I said, a couple years ago, I did that and I had a lot of fun doing it. And I found out a lot of information about my family that I didn't know. I knew some of my family history, but not a lot. I mean, I know who my parents are. I knew who my grandparents are, but I know on my dad's side that my grandfather was adopted. So there is one section of family that is kind of like a mystery. But the whole other side, I could map out genetically. Now, imagine that when you go in knowing that part of your family is missing and you're not sure what you're going to find, you, know, you, you didn't know a whole side of your family and no one ever talked about them. And, and that was kind of like with my dad's side of the family. My grandmother, <laughs> my grandmother, she was a peach, I'll tell you. She never spoke about my, my grandfather's side of the family. And I have to say, she was mean to my mom. And she sat me down one time and she was like, you know what? I know I was mean to your mom and I shouldn't have. However, but let me show you a picture. And she showed me a picture of her mother-in-law. And she was like, if you want to see somebody who's mean, let me show you someone who's mean. And she showed me a picture of my great grandmother. And she was like, this woman was mean. And I was like, really? And she said, yes. She's like, this woman would come in and do a white glove test in my house. And it wasn't just, she was saying she was mean. She used the B word. And my grandmother never swore. So for her to say something like that, that was, that was really a big thing. But imagine finding things like this out that these people never talked about. Okay, so you have this kit, you spit in it, you send it back, you're waiting for this company to run your DNA. Six weeks later, the company sends your information. And in that meantime, and I'm sure a lot of people are like this, you go in, you answer these questions about your eye color, your hair color, whatever, there are certain genetic twists and stuff like that or whatever. And you put in as much information as you have, like if you know your parents' name, if you know your grandparents, any aunts, uncles, or whatever. Then the day arrives that you get that data of who you can be related to. And 
Now, again, this is all depending on if anybody out there has put their genetic data into this batch. All right. And this is all based on their results. And now you have a name. Then imagine this. You get a name of your grandfather and you Google him and you find out that he's a serial killer who died in prison, who was guilty of five murders. And you have to call your dad and tell him and say, hey, dad, this is who your father was that you never knew. Imagine that conversation. This is a story about Edward Wayne Edwards. And I'm going to give you a timeline about his life. Edward Wayne Edwards was born Charles Murray on June 14, 1933. He was, he was a convicted American serial killer. His first escape was in Akron, Ohio in 1955. And what he did was push past, all he did was push past a guard and fled across the country. And he held up gas stations as he fled, a, uh, fled across the country. Up until that point, this guy, he was not out of, he was in and out of the system. Prior to being in jail, he had a rough childhood. In December of 1935, his mother committed suicide. So you're taking his mom out of the picture. In 1940, he was sent to an orphanage in Parma, Ohio. By 1948, they sent him to reform school in, in Pennsylvania. In 1950, they re he returned to Akron um, and started committing burg burglaries. Um, they put him in juvie, he would, and then he ended up leaving uh, juvenile detention to join the Marines, which you would think, okay, all right, Marines, let's get this straight, you know, military. No, he went AWOL. Uh, from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. He was arrested in Jacksonville, Florida, and then he was dishonorably discharged from the Marines. And then in 1952, he was sentenced to a federal reform reformatory in Chillicothe, Ohio, for two years for impersonating a Marine. And um, he had uh, stolen a car. So that takes us back to 1955 when he broke out of the Akron jail. In 1956, he was caught in Montana after a series of armed robberies, and he was sentenced to a penitentiary in Deer Lodge. In July of 1959, he was finally released in Montana, and he was taken to Portland to stand trial for two armed robberies there in 1956 and sentenced to five years of probation. Now, you would think with his long history, eh, oh, just keep him in jail, but no. In 1960, he broke out of jail in Portland, where he had been arrested for turning in false, for a false fire alarm when he was questioned for a double murder of a young couple, which we'll get into later. He'd been, he was then traced to Colorado, where he had, had cashed some checks on a Portland bowling club that he had been a member in November of 1961, he, has, he was finally added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list, fugitives wanted list. 
and a federal warrant uh, charged him with unlawful interstate flight to avoid confinement after a robbery conviction. So he was, he's a little famous right now. And by making it to the 10 most wanted list, by robbing these gas stations, he didn't even try to hide his appearance. Didn't wear a mask, didn't wear, you know, a hat, nothing. He even impersonated police officers to get a good look at evidence. In, Janu- in January of 1962, he was finally captured in, in Atlanta with his wife. When he was captured in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, in 1962, he was granted parole in 1967. Edwards murdered at least five people between 1977 and 1996, which he was suspe- suspected of and which we'll get into. In May 18, 1962, he's sentenced to 16 years in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. In, 1960, in 1967, excuse me, He's transferred to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, and he's paroled from federal prison. So from that point, he's paroled. And then in 1971 to 1973, he goes on a touring, uh, on a tour as a speaker from, for prison reform, because he published a book on rehabilitation. He writes this book that he's been rehabilitated after all of these years of being in prison. And he goes on these speaking tours and, and, you know, I'm doing such a good job, blah, 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 blah. But we're going to fast forward. In August of 1980, there was a couple, Timothy Hack and his girlfriend, Kelly Drew. They're both 19 and they went to a wedding reception at a place called the Concord House in the town of Sullivan. Hack and Drew were country kids. He was a budding farmer and she just graduated from beauty school. The couple had plans to meet up with friends at a nearby carnival. They didn't stay long at the reception, maybe just long enough to have a drink. There were people that saw them leave, but no one came forward later to say that they saw them outside. It was an August night, it's hot, and the wedding guests mostly stayed inside the dance hall. Hack and Drew never made it to the carnival, and they never made it home. Their families reported them missing the next day. Hack's old Olds Cutlass Supreme was found in the Concord House parking lot, locked with his wallet still inside. There was a massive search, and it was considered one of the largest in Wisconsin history. A few days later, after the dis- disappearance, police began to find disturbing things which is what they said, along the side of the road. Drew's pants were cut from the ankle to the groin, rope, a strange piece of yellow tubing, and more bits of torn clothing. And then two months later, a squirrel squirrel hunters stumbled upon Drew's naked body in some woods bordering a a cornfield. Hack's body was found 100 feet away. And though the bodies were badly decomposed, a forensic exam concluded that Drew had likely been sexually assaulted and strangled. It appeared to have, uh, Drew had appeared to have lig- ligature marks on her ankles and wrist. Hack had been stabbed in the chest and back. So it makes you wonder what happened that Hack stood there while Drew, was Drew attacked first? Was Hack a- attacked first? 
how did that go down? There were all kinds of leads that sent the detectives and the police in different directions. And the one theory is the killer was was someone known to the couple, um, perhaps someone who knew Hack, or maybe there was a high-profile serial killer, someone like Henry Lee Lucas, um, who was later ruled out. Slowly, other tips came trickling in. The witnesses had reported that the Concord House handyman had a bloody nose around the time the couple had went missing. And he had been interviewed and insisted he had gotten the injury while deer hunting. Investigators moved on. Time moved on. Five, then ten, and then twenty years had gone by. The case loomed large in investigators' mind. They wanted to close it, but there was nothing there for them to use. So in 2007, evidence was resubmitted to the state crime lab. And for the first time, the lab was able to isolate DNA from an unknown donor. The DNA generated a hit. The publicity stirred up memories. People made calls. One tip about a a suspect seemed promising. The investigators went back. They researched the suspect's background, and they started to get excited about who it was. The investigators traveled to Louisville to interview this person. And that person said, He didn't remember the couple, or did he? Did he have a beer while he was at the Concord House while at the bar? Who knows? The investigators then asked him if he had ever been deer hunting. He said no. Now remember, we've talked about this in the past. If you're going to lie about anything, and I mean anything, you better make sure you're going to lie... This lie, it better be worth going to jail for, or your memory better be tip-top shape like having an eidetic memory. Because it was the wrong fucking answer. 29 years prior, when he was asked about the bloody nose he had, he said he had been deer hunting. Now again, this is 29 years later. Not everybody remembers But how many people are interviewed for a murder or being interviewed as a murder suspect? Not many. Unless you have Alzheimer's or the beginning of Alzheimer's, most people are going to remember that. If you ask me what I had for breakfast five weeks ago, nine times out of 10, I'm probably gonna tell you coffee because that's what I have for breakfast every morning, coffee. If you ask me what I did, five weeks ago, I'm going to pull out a calendar and I'm going to look at the date because that's how I work. I have to look backwards. If you ask me what I did 29 years ago, I'm going to have to look at the calendar. Unless it is something specific, something memorable that happened, you're not going to know. But I damn well guarantee you, if you got interviewed as a murder suspect, you're gonna fucking remember what you did that day. And if you said you went deer hunting, you better fucking remember you went deer hunting. That's all I'm gonna say about that. This person that said that he went deer hunting, but didn't go deer hunting, but said he went deer hunting or didn't go deer hunting, whatever it was, he was a handyman. And his name was Edward Wayne Edwards. And at this time of the interview, he was 76 years old, obese, infirm, and an old man with oxygen tubes up his nose. 
which at this point in time, I could really use those oxygen tubes. And he agreed to give a DNA sample. I cannot tell you how many times you do not give up a DNA sample if you think you've done something. You just don't. You just don't. I am a walking, dropping DNA sample. I lose so much hair that you could make a voodoo doll in one day. I am, it's no joke because of like just hair falling out. I, I have a lot of hair and I joke about it all the time that if I believed in voodoo, I, it's not that I don't believe in it. I respect it. But if somebody wanted to make a voodoo doll for me, of me, whatever, all they had to do is follow me around and they would have enough hair to make a voodoo doll in one day. I am a walking, talking, dropping DNA sample. I mean, everybody is, but just for hair, I'm telling you, there's no way that I could commit a murder. I would have to be wrapped in bubble wrap or one of those, those uh, hazmat suits. And then on top of it, I would have to have somebody roll me with a sticky roll to make sure that I did not get any hair on the suit. And there's no denying that you could not see somebody walking in one of those hazmat suits. There's, there's just no way. And you would hear you walking going, <laughs> I mean, come on, seriously. So again, DNA. Even though Edwards didn't make a strong impression as a suspect the first time around, because he had apparently only been in town at that point for two months. He, he had been a drifter. He did odd jobs. He lived at various campgrounds for months at a time, which, you know, people who, um, right now people, well, prior to this pandemic, people, you know, love doing that, that get rid of like all their stuff that they don't, they don't want stuff. They do that. They go, they go and they live at campgrounds and stuff like that. Back then it's called a drifter. Now it's, you know, it's the thing to do. He eventually moved with his family out of the area shortly after the murders and they forgot about him, which was too bad because if they had taken a deeper look into his background, they would have seen some very relevant information about him. He was a career criminal. He was a thief, a forger, a law enforcement impersonator. You know, he was involved in bank robberies and other crimes that landed him on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Obviously, this wasn't back in the day when they had computers that were linked. They had told the detectives he had had sex with the woman and then watched a group of men stomp the couple to death. That is what he told the detectives. After his arrest in Kentucky, he didn't, he, he told them he didn't know who killed Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. They filed, his lawyers filed a complaint. You know, the, the couple, you know, disappeared from the wedding reception. It, you know, he, he had nothing to do with this. And then when they asked them, you know, hey, how'd you get your, how'd your DNA 
um, get on uh, Drew's pants. He said he had drank with Hack and Drew and had consensual sex with Drew in her in a field outside the reception hall. There's there's all kinds of ways that this could have happened, but at the same point in time, the way that Drew and Hack had died, there's no way that his semen got onto Drew's body and the way that they died lined up with his story. He, um, Edward's wife later told detectives that she and her husband left Wisconsin awfully quick at night after he was questioned about the slain couple, you know, three decades ago. And they moved to Pennsylvania, even though Edwards hadn't lined up a job and didn't know anyone there, she said. Um, and the couple moved around quite frequently, but it, it was unusual for them to leave after the school year started, she said. That being said, that should have been red flags, but according to the wife, it wasn't unusual for them to be moving around. Now, in December of 1982, he became incarcerated in Pennsylvania for arson. And then in July of 1986, he was released from the Pennsylvania prison. In July of 2009, that's when he's arrested. Again, we're, we're, we're actually catching up to where we're at with Edwards. In 2010, Edwards finally pleads guilty to the Hack and Drew murders. And he also pled guilty to two other murders uh, in, from 1977. Then in 2011, Edwards was sentenced to death by, le- by lethal injection for killing, get this, his own foster son. His name was Danny Boy. Edwards, get this. Now, remember I said he, he was found guilty for five murders. So we have Hack and Drew. There was the two other murders from 1977. And now his foster son, Danny Boy. So that's five. Edwards talked his quote-unquote son into going AWOL from the army. And when this young man came quote-unquote home, Edwards took him into the woods near the house and put two bullets in his head. And this is supposedly someone that he cared for. And he did this to get the $250,000 insurance money. This is the kind of guy that that he was. A three-judge panel in Geauga County issued the sentence after Edwards declined to um, present any evidence or ask for mercy. I mean, the guy is a piece of work. I mean, he really was. The, the, two, the two people from Ohio, um, Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub, those were the two he murdered in Ohio. Edwards... So what does this mean for the grandson of Edwards? Well, he hooked up with a producer and they looked into some information and believed that was some certain information that Edwards could be, and and I say could be, involved in several other murders. And you're going to have to follow me on this and their train of thought, not mine. There is... A show out there that's called It Was Him, The Many Murders of Ed Edwards, which it looks at a serial killer chameleon who hid in plain sight, giving motivational speeches about his crimes. Ed Edwards 
being one of what it, they're trying to show is one of America's most prolific serial killers. He had confessed to killing Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub and the sweetheart murders of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew in Wisconsin in 1980 and the 1996 murder of Danny Boy Edwards, Edwards in Ohio, which those five murders are enough for any serial killer's portfolio. But Edwards is suspected in many more. And some of these are high-profile cases. And like I said, you're going to have to follow me on this. Like the Black Dahlia murder of 1947, which if you look at the age group and stuff like that, it puts his age at like 13. John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, the West Memphis Three, and the Zodiac Killings. Not only that, Edwards has been placed in the U.S. cities with some unsolved murders have occurred. And these cities include Beverly Allen and, La and Larry Payton in Portland, Oregon, in, Oregon in 1960 with double homicide, Great Falls, Montana in 1956, double homicide, and San Francisco, California from 1968 to 1970. And to hear Detective John Coldcase Cameron to tell it, Edwards may have killed Teresa Halbach, the woman whose death was investigated in the Netflix docuseries Making a Murder. Now, this was off of some research that I had done. I have to say that in the research, Edwards was af wasn't afraid of writing about what-if scenarios, a lot, a lot like the OJ book. If I had done it, it would have gone like this. His kids saw that when they moved into neighborhoods, children would go missing and they would have to hurry and move. They were watching TV and something would come on and one of the murders, Edward would make specific comments about the case. And the only one that Edwards really got upset about was Hoffa. Yes, I said Hoffa, as in Jimmy Hoffa. Was this person an FBI informant? Could he have been? He was in the same jail as Hoffa at the same time. Yes, he was. He, being Edwards, has been considered the Forrest Gump of murders. He's been at the same place at the same time as some of the most biggest names of crime ever. The family has letters from Edwards to the FBI talking about him helping out with the FBI in the past. Conspiracy theories can go on and on. But Edwards never made it to his execution date. He died at the Corrections Medical Center of Columbus, Ohio on April 7th, 2011. His execution date was for August 31st of that year. Look, this guy was ballsy. He would impersonate police to see what evidence they had against him. That's ballsy and scary at the same time. And if he was working with the FBI or any branch of government, he was certainly using it to his advantage at least until they were done with him. But he did as much damage as he could within as much time as possible. And what can we learn from this? You certainly don't know who's in your family tree, and this has pr been proven recently with several cases that have been broken with the use of DNA and given profiles on these websites to find, find matches. Old cases are coming to light, and they're being solved either by police or by accident with unknown family members trying to find out who they are. I hope that you've enjoyed the story and please let me know by going online and either going to 
iTunes or podbean.com and rating this podcast. And remember that this podcast is available on these platforms, iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Facebook. And please remember, stay safe, stay healthy. And this is Kathy signing off.